a special Wednesday edition of our Tuesday Lunch Speaker Series at the Berkman Center, which we're pleased to put on um, along with the Trap Hagen uh, Distinguished Alumni Speaker Series. We are live streaming this, as we often do with Berkman events, and it's being recorded, which I just flagged for you to say. Uh, we'll do Q&A at the end, and I hope you ask lots of great questions. Just be mindful you'll be uh, on, on the camera at that point. Um, we have with us today Alan Weinberger, uh, an LLM uh, from the class of 1973, who has done many things that he's going to talk to us about, is the founder and now runs an organization called ASCII, which is the uh, premier North American uh, sort of organization of IT services professionals uh, and others involved in uh, resale of computers and, and provision of, of IT services, and is going to tell us about the evolution of that marketplace over the last uh, 30 years. And uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Alan. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Um, I want to thank, of course, the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Um, out of the group, uh, I actually was here in 73. I can't believe it's been those many years. And of course, the world was very different at that time. Who, who is here, not from the law school, any other schools uh, that are represented, people in uh, college, business school? Everybody's affiliated with the law school here? Um, but maybe some people taking some courses in other schools at Harvard. Is anybody doing that? Cross-registering? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where? School of Education. Education? Okay. All right. Well, um, I, I, I'm going to just talk about my experiences, um, and uh, possibly some of this may resonate with you as you look back years later and uh, a quiet time and might see that this might help you in your own careers. And my talk is not going to be about philosophy or psychology, the power of positive thinking, or do the best you can in whatever you're going to do. I'm just going to recount a couple of my experiences, and maybe you can learn from being in the industry for 30 years. I did start out as a typical law student. Actually, I got my JD at NYU. I really loved law school so much. I went to Wall Street for a while, a major firm, and uh, I went to Harvard, got an LLM. I cross-registered at the uh, medical school. I like sciences a lot. I took a course with the dean of the medical school. Uh, I did my thesis for von Mirren on conflict of laws. Uh, I really like conflicts, sort of dry area, but um, it was published. Uh, that's what you had to do. And I took some other courses, uh, and I, you know, really found um, Harvard op opened my eyes, the way of thinking, uh, being curious about the world. And I luckily met Harold Berman, who was a professor at Harvard at that time, and he was the founding trustee of a new law school in Vermont. And he said, Alan, do you want to help start a school, be a teacher? I was in my 20s. And since I like law school and I like talking about issues, uh, I said, sure, where is it? He said, oh, it's in South Royalton. I said, where is that? He said, well, I said, is it near Hanover, a suburb of Hanover? Does Hanover have a suburb? <laughs> he said, well, it's sort of a suburb, maybe 50 people there, but um, I started and was the first professor hired and taught for a couple of years. School got accredited and uh, it's, it's done its thing, and it's done obviously very well in the environmental area and other areas. So I, you know, I was curious and I liked the academic world, and um, uh, but I, I, my interest, I, I think, was an entrepreneur helping start a school uh, and helping with the curricula and. Uh, teaching that summer, the students, and actually that summer was a very robust summer. One reason it started, a lot of professors from Harvard, Yale wanted to be in Vermont in the summer, so that's a nice place to be, and that's why the school 
got its got its got going. Uh, then I, well, came to Washington and uh, thought I'd become a lawyer again and make a living. And I created a, a in the early 80s when IBM came out with a PC, and obviously um, Microsoft was the operating system and Intel was the chipset. So the Microsoft Intel duopoly, as it was called in those days, uh, had the hegemony over the industry. And uh, IBM said, well, why don't we make our brand a very exclusive brand and we'll charge $8,000 for a PC that was not much more than a typewriter. Uh, but it can only go through certain chains, only certain franchise chains. They control distribution, IBM. Uh, this is when Akers was chairman. Obviously, he made the deal with Microsoft a couple of years before, uh, the early 80s. So they had a couple of franchise chains, Entree, Computerland, Microwage, these are names of old, and only these chains could sell the IBM PC. And since it was so restricted, we could charge $8,000 for a computer. And the dealers selling at that time made 40% margin on the PC. And that's all they did. They said, here's the PC. It's 8,000. We make 40%. And everybody's happy. Like selling a car. Uh, well, the, the dealers came to me as a lawyer and said, let's create a co-op. I mean, our franchise, the way the franchise system worked, and still works any place in the world, the franchise will charge a royalty of 6% on sales, and it can be other things. And uh, But why don't we do leverage our buying power, our group? We're, we're a community of franchisees. We've nothing to do with the franchisor. We're, we're reselling this product of the PC into all sorts of offices and law firms and banks and doctor's offices. Let's get our group together. Let's leverage our power. We got our own power. So I created a co-op for them, and we try to make some deals. Then um, there were three big software companies in the early 80s. It was Ashton Tate, uh, Lotus, and Microsoft. Actually, the biggest one was Lotus, Lotus 1, 2, 3, and then uh, Ashton Tate, uh, DBase, database software product, and Microsoft just had the operating system and a small company and obviously some applications. Uh, but the largest chain of software stores selling box software was owned by Ashton Tate, and George Tate was a professor of computer science, I think in Berkeley. He died, and the franchise chain provided no service to the franchisees. So they came to me really as a lawyer, and they said, well, you created a co-op for this entree chain. We only sell software. Uh, we're agnostic. We'll sell anybody's software, but we're owned by Ashton Tate, and, and the founder died of Ashton Tate. George Tate was his name. And why don't we uh, leverage our buying power like you've done for this chain? So we had a series of meetings around the country, and we created with a new, came up with a new concept, a, a for-profit group uh, of like-minded technical companies that were selling software, which is a little more hard to sell than the hardware in the early 80s. And, uh, but let's make it a for-profit company, because then it'll really be real, and we can get more leverage with the vendors, because the vendors are all for-profit. Now, co-ops come and go, not the Harvard coop, but co-ops come and go, and uh, you, know, you never know who's running it, who's owning it. It's not really capitalism, and obviously all the companies are, are part of the capitalistic system, and co-op is somewhat in the middle between, like these words, socialism, that was used in the political campaigns, co-op as opposed to capitalism. So ASCII is in the middle. It's a for-profit co-op like that, real stockholders. So they said, well, you should run it because we have to run our stores, so I'll, I'll be the majority stockholder in these 40 founding stores with the minority stockholders. So we created a real company. And 
As soon as we created that, there was a giant lawsuit. Um, now, why is there a lawsuit? Well, the, the franchisor is bankrupt. All these franchisees are not paying royalties to the franchisor, and one of the big assets of the bankrupt estate in Chapter 11 proceeding in LA uh, was the franchisees not paying the royalties. And uh, they immediately sued, the franchisor was suing all the franchises back royalties, and they sued us, the ASCII group, for interfering with uh, contractual inter interference with, well, it, it's a tort, contractual interference with contractual, intentional interference with contractual relationships. So, and other torts, and other wrongs, uh, whatever you want to put in the, in the lawsuit in the bankruptcy court, because this, this entity was in bankruptcy. Um, well, the 40 dealers and us, we were all sued, and we hired White and Case, which was the firm I was originally at years ago, uh, and they said, well, what's the strategy here? We're sued in bankruptcy court, but under the First Amendment and other defenses, you can create any group you want. You, you don't have to be in their group. You can create your own group. And if they don't want to be in your group, independent business people can be in any group they want to be. So we formed our group, and White Case immediately sued them in federal court. So we had dueling lawsuits. The bankruptcy court sued. They were suing us in. The federal court, we were suing them in. And as you know, bankruptcy courts are generally helping the creditors, so they're going to be more, look more favorably on their suit. But on the federal court suit, hopefully the judge is going to look at the First Amendment in the right way, and they did. And we started winning our suit. He tried to consolidate the two. It didn't work. They collapsed. And they all went bankrupt. The guy who brought the suit went bankrupt. The whole chain went bankrupt, and ASCII went on its way. The other cute thing about the birth of ASCII, this gestation, was that they were all technical people who said, well, we're also Associated Software Independence, Inc., which also says, spells ASCII, the ASCII code. Um, and now there's Unicode, but you know ASCII code is still part of Unicode, so it's still probably everything in the world uses the ASCII code pretty much. Uh, so this is a cute thing. So we got a trademark with the word ASCII, because we couldn't trademark ASCII, because it's American National Standards Institute's worldwide standard. Uh, but you can put a group behind it. It's like General Electric, General Motors. So we trademarked the word ASCII. And we have a website, ASCII.com. So that, that's um, sort of how, uh, how ASCII started, uh, baptism by fire. But I, I sort of thought at that time, after all these meetings, that the smartest people in this industry were these people, were independent trusted advisors that end users were coming to and saying, can you help me with my computer needs? This was many years ago. Um, uh, and what's the computer needs? Everybody had a different need. Uh, IBM or AT&T or all the big players in that time, or even Microsoft, only did part of a solution. Even those days, um, you know, if you were doctors, this is before HIPAA, before the latest requirements, but doctor's offices had special needs that were different than a law firm, than a bank, uh, than any other entity out there. So these, these people knew those special needs, and they had to be agnostic. Like a, like a medical doctor. They were trusted advisors even then. You came to them with your problem, and uh, they said, well, uh, we'll help you out. Uh, people didn't say, I saw this brand on television. I want this. In those days, there were other brands, Leading Edge and K-Pro and ALR. These are brands that are not around anymore. Uh, or IBM. Why should I get the IBM? I can spend 30% less and get a K-Pro product. Uh, does it do as well? And these guys had to give them that advice. The same thing like a generic or a branded drug. They have a fiduciary duty, like a lawyer, like a doctor, to do what's best for their customer. 
um, a fiduciary duty. It's pretty high duty. So they have to be agnostic. And they're not getting bought out to sell a particular product by money under the table. It didn't exist in this industry. I don't know anything about the medical industry. I know this industry. It does not exist. It doesn't exist today. So it's a free market. This market's unregulated. The, the, in, the IT industry is unregulated by the government. It's not the telecom sector. It's a completely free market, and it worked. It really did work. Uh, and it, the linchpin of, of this market was these smaller IT guys putting the solution together for the needs of an end user uh, without any government regulation. Um, so uh, one lesson, the first lesson on this little talk I'm giving today is nothing appears the way it appears in a way. Um, starting a Facebook, there's a lawsuit, and you probably know the history of Microsoft, there was a lawsuit on the operating system. ASCII had this big lawsuit. Um, and all these, ASCII's are very small compared to obviously Facebook and Microsoft, but all three were starting out with some new paradigm and there was a lawsuit. Uh, a bet the business lawsuit for all, all of them. If we would have lost, ASCII wouldn't have, would, would have lived. So the second lesson here is Smart legal minds make a difference. And they're really required almost before the gestation period of anything. So you, it's, it's obviously uh, Bill Gates had his father. Uh, Zuckerberg had top legal advice. And we had White and Case. So um, the legal process is, is involved in day one for anything that's important. Uh, and if you don't get good legal advice, uh, you're probably going to lose. Um, well, what is ASCII's business model today and as it's evolved? It's a simple concept. Uh, obviously, uh, Microsoft's model was the operating system and then applications and leveraged that with the IBM deal. Uh, ASCII is, is a leverage of, we have about 2,000 of these independent businesses all throughout North America. Uh, Alicia Vett is here from Ottawa, and she does all communications. And we have a staff in Ottawa. We have staff of ASCII Group corporate staff in different places. We're, we're all throughout North America, about 2,000 independent stores, resellers. They have mostly not storefronts. They're uh, called solution providers, uh, managed service providers. There are a lot of names, but they're independent IT companies that will mostly provide a product or service and uh, both for end users' business. Not, not I'm not talking at home. This is not going to Staples and getting a PC for your home. It's people having serious business needs. Um, and IT, ASCII is the largest single player in the channel. And this is a term of art that's used in the industry around the world. And what is the channel? Uh, in the United States, about a trillion dollars goes through the channel, the US dollars, in products and services to all sorts of non-home users. Around the world, it's about 3.7 trillion. We're about 33% of the world's IT products and services. And these, these statistics come from CompTIA, which is a trade association based in Chicago. And we, we have some handouts here, and uh, you, can, you can see the statistics. Out of the one trillion in the United States, the majority, well, not the majority, not 50%, but large component is now services. It's not a particular product. And the biggest margin, or the value add, is in the services. Because the products, a lot of them become commoditized. That's why, as you see, HP is even divided into two and a lot of changes. Obviously, IBM sold its PC company to Lenovo, the Chinese company, 
They sold the server division to Lenovo, a Chinese company. Um, and Yahoo's being sold, and the biggest distributor in the world is Ingram Micro, is uh, possibly being sold to another Chinese company. So a lot of changes are taking place, uh, but the biggest change is it's become more of a service industry. So in a lot of ways, it's looking to be similar to the medical industry, where, again, the value is in the service, the doctor's service. That's who you go to. You don't go to a hospital. You don't see an ad in television and say, this looks good to me. You've got to get somebody that knows what they're doing. Um, so after the industry started with the PC sector, then in the 90s, obviously, internet, re internet revolution took place with custom software, verticalization, virtualization, and the channel played a big role in that. And then the last five or six years, what's happened is there's a merger between the telecom industry, uh, regulated by the FCC, and the IT industry, which is unregulated. So these solution providers now have to have knowledge in all sectors, because when somebody wants to integrate their VoIP, you know, the phone system is not PBX anymore, it's integrated all digital, so everything's digital. Uh, so you, you got to go to these solution providers to get the answer. Now, with ASCII, they, they do specialize. Some people do uh, one thing or another, so they'll maybe bring another uh, expert in to, to co-joint venture with them, like, like a big law firm will have specialists coming in together. That's, that's the way they work. Um, uh, of course, in 2015, after we've had the PC revolution, the Internet well, it's all the IT revolution, that's the umbrella, but originally it was PCs, then custom software, then internet. Now it's the IoT. Every, the IoT is the Internet of Things. And Gartner, a major research house, says that by 2020, there'll be 20 billion endpoint or devices connected to the internet, 20 billion. And what's going to happen when there's problems? I mean, one vendor is not going to know what to do. Again, these people are going to even be more important than they were in the beginning of the IT revolution. Um, uh, ASCII started with a very simple community, a simple principle, a principle of community. Uh, it, it leveraged the power of these independent experts, small businesses, for their mutual benefit. And it's a leverage, but think about it. It's the same principle as small towns, um, states, countries, all sorts of geographic distributions. And ASCII started before the Internet. So it was a, not a virtual community, it was a real community. And as we know, the world even wants more real communities. With the Internet, it doesn't, didn't take away the fact we have a community right now. There's the Berkman community, there's the Harvard Law School community, um, and everything's a community. It's gone back almost to the roots of face-to-face -face communities. ASCII's programs, specifically, what it does for its members, we have about 80 different programs. Um, we have the world's largest IT forum, uh, which only the members can have. It's, it's equivalent to, uh, say, you're a law firm and you have a trial and you, you talk back and forth what happened after the trial, or you're a bunch of surgeons around the United States and you had a very difficult surgery. You maybe get an online forum and talk about how the surgery went. These people, 24-7, 365, are posting what they did in the field, or they want to team with somebody else, or they have an office, they have a client in L.A., and they've got to do something in New York. So this, this brain is going back and forth, and it's the world's largest brain for the IT experts. It's called the ASCII Forum. And th this wasn't developed in the beginning, and it just sort of happened. Um, 
because the world changed. It couldn't have happened if the internet wasn't what it is. But once we had this brain trust together, this uh, is an extrapolation and from the brain trust of these people to add more, more synergies than they could get just in a room because they're all over North America. Uh, the other thing ASCII does is uh, group pricing. They're made, the way this industry works is there's two-tier distribution for the most part. The resellers or integrators or solution providers can either buy directly from a manufacturer, and Microsoft does that and others do it, or you buy through a major wholesaler, like the big, big ones, the names are Ingram Micro and Tech Data and Cinex. Ingram Micro is a $48 billion wholesaler, New York Stock Exchange Company. Very thin margins, margins less than one half of 1% because they're a wholesaler. Um, but a lot of these people buy from a wholesaler because you can go one stop and you can buy all your products. The end users don't buy from the wholesalers, they buy from these solution providers and integrators. But the industry sells through the wholesalers because the big players, the HPs and Lenovo's, will ship millions of dollars of product and say, okay, now you get rid of it. And Amazon's a wholesaler too, so people use Amazon because Amazon's doing everything. Um, we also have errors and omissions, a group plan with Lloyd's of London, similar to a malpractice uh, policy that doctors would want, lawyers have to have, doctors have to have, and it's called E&O, because when they make an install of the data and whatever they got to do for any end user, they're supposing all of a sudden they didn't do it right, or the data's wiped away, or there's a terrorist attack, something happens, didn't they back up the data? Back it up twice? Where's the security? You're, you're my expert. I lost my, all my data, all my patient records, all my legal records, you know, under HIPAA. There's all sorts of... Uh, government regulations on all this stuff. So they have to know that, and if they're sued, they need malpractice. So that's where, again, it's becoming similar to the medical and the legal industry, but the biggest industry of all is the IT. It's about four trillion. So, uh, but it's, it's replicating the original industries that are around much longer. In, I mean, legal industry, it's an industry, but it's, it's a service sector of, of society. Um, one other thing we've done is we, we Another complicated thing in the industry is when you sell across state lines a product or service, and now these, these solutions are integrated services. They could be some software, some hardware, uh, some services. How do you tax them? How do you collect state tax? Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate on states uh, taxing on the Internet. Well, every state has a rule and has a law, and there's a, there's a service that uh, educates uh, well, Fortune 100 companies, Walmarts and the rest on this, we actually paid for that and help have our members use this service where they can, if they're making a sale over state lines, they'll know exactly which states require tax on these, this bundled service because every state's different. So we've made that available to them. That's a valuable asset. I mean, they're running businesses, so it's not easy. In this political year, I'm going to make one interesting observation. Um, this is not, nothing to do with politics, but this is interesting. Uh, ASCII is really a collective. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a socialist thinking. Uh, collective, it's a group, we're getting together, all boats rise together, everybody's treated equally. But it's a collective of for-profit business people. Uh, in other words, they pay by the rules of capitalism, there's no government handouts, they have to pay rent, they pay salaries, they pay overhead, there's no freebies, they have to earn their keep every day, and they have to add value to their customer, they're not going to get paid. If they don't get paid, they're out of business. So in a way, the ASCII's community incorporates much of the advocacy and the philosophy of both parties today, an interesting way of looking at it. 
of course, but nothing to do with politics, but you, everything's in the world out there, and uh, that's, that's the ASCII model. Well, I'll talk about a failure. When you've been around for a while, everything doesn't go your way. Uh, and this is in, let's see, the mid-'90s, General Motors appeared on our doorstep. General Motors owned EDS at that time, which was a major integrator based in Plano, Texas, outside of Dallas. He started by Ross Perot, you know, who ran for president one time. And but he sold it to General Motors, and they had it. And they said, why don't we, at the beginning of the internet, create a B2B market space, a dot-com. Hey, the dot-coms are great. Everybody's creating dot-coms. ASCII's such an interesting player. Let's do one website where the whole IT industry can connect more efficiently than if it is now. And end users could find the industry, could find the local reseller, and you know, specialize and verticalize the whole industry for, to be more efficient. That's what the internet does. So we raised venture capital, we raised $20 million and, um, or more in the 90s, and we created TechnologyNet, which was going to be one website called a B2B market space. And I actually went to Microsoft's canvas and met with Satya Nadala. Anybody know who he is? Satya Nadala? Okay. He had a small little inside office, very nice man, very quiet, sort of academic. He was running B Central and MSN at that time. And I said, you know, we have this joint venture with EDS, and we have something called the IT locator, which is it be a locator that can show anybody in the world where the local Microsoft VAR is. That was the word used in those days, integrators. And it's a more efficient way of finding where you can get Microsoft product, because Microsoft, Microsoft sells and still sells about 70% or 80% of all its products through the channel. It does not sell direct. I mean, it sells direct, but the vast majority is through the channel, even today. So Satya said, well, this is a good idea. He put it two clicks off MSNBC, our locator, the IT technologist locator. Microsoft anointed it. Of course, now he's the CEO of Microsoft. So. Um, there's a little bit of history. Uh, but technology that didn't make it. It didn't make it because it was a little too early. Uh, and it, all the dot-coms went dot-bombs after 9-11. And they were all too, most of them too early. Um, it just, 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 just was too early. Um, but he who hesitates is lost in the first mover advantage. And all the buzzwords were part of that time that the Kool-Aid was, was big. And it's probably still around. It's, kind of, it's coming back again. Maybe the IPOs are lower than they used to be. But um, the way, in a nutshell, if some of you guys don't know, the way the VC community works, most of it is OPM, other people's money. It, it, the venture capitalists are getting investors to come in. And they have big funds, some billions of dollars. And they generally take a carry of 2% of the fund. So if you have a $100 million fund, you have $2 million to pay your overhead. No matter what happens, even if you don't invest a penny in, 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 in some hot new startup, you got $2 million because you've got to live and you've got other staff and you've got overhead. And then if you have a winner, you, again, it varies, but generally it's that you maybe get 20% of the, of the winnings. And generally you want to get a 20-bagger, meaning 20 times your original investment. So you get 20 times your investment, and if you 19 go out of business and one makes it, you're at least even. So... That's the game. You got a one out of 20, a 20 bagger, or even, and short of that, you lose, and then your investors might not come back to you anymore because you lost. Uh, but you do better, like some of the big guys, they keep coming back. Well, um, we had some investment, we had some of that, but it didn't work. We, we, were, we were just too early, 
and it, and it just didn't work. Uh, let me give you one, exa one example of, um, uh, before I get towards my end and then we'll have some questions, of what are the ASCII guys, and we're, we're about 2,000 North American, and there probably are about 100,000 totally in, in North America there, uh, there of these solution providers, integrators, and maybe about 400,000 total people selling IT products and solutions when you add single guys, single guys, guys and ladies together uh, as sort of organizations. That, but people can be experts, one, one person, like a sole doctor. I mean, you don't need a big organization to be an expert. Um, we have one. Of, we had a little member meeting of some of our members in in the Baltimore, Boston area. We in Baltimore. We have next couple of weeks, um, and one guy is a fellow by the name of uh, uh, Richard Trahant of Land Computers in Peabody, and he just uh, finished installing in Logan Airport for all of American Airlines and U.S. Air about 250 of the most advanced cameras that are made today. I mean, uh, I don't know, a thousand feet you can see almost a thumbnail. Uh, and it was now installed all throughout Logan in areas where people, on the field, not where the baggage is, but what's going on the planes, what's going on underneath the planes, what's going, where the baggage is going in, and all sorts of stuff. So this is a, American did not do it itself. It went to one of our guys to do it. There's a big $400,000 contract, and more contracts are coming his way. So the point is, I was even at Microsoft's campus once when they had a problem with the AV. This is years ago, so it's not as good as this AV. But they had to call a VAR in to help them out. Um, they didn't have somebody on Microsoft's campus to do it. So they, these smaller stores, really, stores and integrators and bars, are really make, what makes this world go around today. Without them, the, the promise in the future would not be there. So they're going to become more and more important. And this is one example of some large products. They, they work for Boeing. They work for the biggest companies in the world. These people are called in to do all sorts of things. Uh, I'm going to conclude with this, and then we'll have some uh, questions. Some of you are going to graduate this year. Some of you are still on uh, campus. But I, I think um, my big lesson is everything's a community, one way or another. You learn from people, you learn from your professors, you learn from your peers. Uh, ASCII's community is everybody learns from each other. And we have nine meetings around North America where we'll bring on 150 solution providers and the vendors like the Microsofts and others come and spend two days talking about technology. So, you know, they're like the, almost like the drug companies. That's not the solution. It, it, everybody's DNA is different. Everybody's uh, needs are different in IT. No one has the same need. Even law firms have different needs. So you have to have an expert that understands those needs but can talk the talk and work with the lawyers in the legal world and the doctors in the medical world and others so they can integrate an intelligent solution. Um, uh, there's an old Indian expression and sort of says where you stand depends on where you sit. Uh, as law students, you're sitting here, but you're curious here at Harvard, and that's part of the education is to open your eyes to the world that's going to change rapidly in the next 5, 10, and 20 years, because who could have predicted what happened in the last 5 years or 10 years? Uh, but with the education you have, the professors you've had, especially the peers, and a lot of people think the best education is the peers, um, you're going to be able to maintain and advance in any way you want. Uh, and maybe some of the discussion we've had here is my 32 years 
starting ASCII and then running it with great people and teamwork is everything. And uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't do as much as I used to because the staff does a lot. But I think you maybe remember some of this. It's all a community. The world's changing rapidly, but the IT revolution is going to bring things on that we can't even think of right now. So I want to end with that, and thank you very much, and we'll have a couple questions. Thank you so much, Alan. It's great. Uh, I'm going to do play the Phil Donahue role and hand the microphone around just so we can pick it up on the webcast if people have questions. Maybe I'll start with one just about the community point that you were mentioning and just noting that I assume that many of the members of ASCII are themselves in some in some ways sort of competing with each other for business, yet That's a very are also uh, deriving the benefits from being part of this community. How do you strike that balance between encouraging them to sh you know share resources and information while recognizing their... That's an excellent question. Normally, you'd think everybody's competitor, competitive. Um, well, as a cliche, if you had one lawyer in a small town, there's not much business. Also, you have two lawyers, you have more business. It's not quite that. But they really are not competitive. They, they work well together because they have to work together. So uh, if you're too competitive, you're not going to be in the community. You're ostracized. We have not had one lawsuit by one member in 32 years against another member. Nothing because they're a community, and you work it out. If not, you're ousted from the community. This is all true. Um, and it, it doesn't add for government regulation, but there's no government regulation with these guys. Ladies, I'm guys, I'm talking generically. Um, I'm not 22, so I don't even know whether the word's right anymore. <laughs> probably, probably is. Um, but there's no, it's, it's not what you would think competitiveness. And it's the same thing like being a law student. I mean, you're competitive in law school, but you, you, you're with your peers. You're learning from your peers. And maybe some guy's lady's more competitive, then you might learn from that person a little bit. Or you, you find, anyway, so the, the, the competition isn't there that way. Yeah. Other questions, thoughts you want to share? Hey, thank you very much for your talk. My name is Adam Holland. I'm a staff member at the Berkman Center, and I wanted to follow up on some of the comments you were making about what you foresaw coming soon with the explosion of the Internet of Things and its effects on, on your group. What I was specifically wondering is if you as an organization have ever tried in the past or have any plans in the future for what I suppose I would describe as managing up. It sounds like you're in a an almost unique position to make policy suggestions about interoperability or standardization around, you know, whether it's physical or software formats. And I think that that's probably on you know the top three issues people are discussing regarding the Internet of Things, which is that if we have a hundred or a thousand different formats, its security will be almost impossible to guarantee. And you all are saying, hey, why don't we figure this out ahead of time? It sounds like you've done that in the past. That, that's absolutely a very good question, and that's uh, different formats, and obviously the big manufacturers are trying to get together, right, and they're trying to standardize formats. Um, we, we have taken positions. We, uh, well, I tell you, it, when the Microsoft antitrust suits were taking place, uh, well, there were four op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, Gates wrote one, and they came to me. I wrote the other one on the Microsoft side saying, we're independent experts. We, we don't think there's necessarily a monopoly in this industry because you create a better operating system. And sure enough, and this was in the late 90s before Google was out and Apple was doing what it's doing uh, and uh, before open source was where it is today. 
Um, and, and we took that position, that we don't think the government should to regulate something that's working. Uh, and then Bork and Dole wrote the two on the side of the, the government, let's bust up Microsoft. So there were four op-eds, so Microsoft came to us to do that. Um, we, we can do that. And, and our interest is in making it work for the consumer in the most efficient way. You know, we have no interest of a particular vendor wanting a particular format because it's going to make more money on it. Or everybody, every vendor wants to do that. They want to have proprietary formats. Um, we, we would, we would, uh, we could be involved, but we don't, we're not, we're not a trade association. We don't lobby. We don't throw our weight around in that regard. We want to be as neutral as possible and leverage just we're really a, a purebred, a neutral organization in that regard. Yeah. Other questions? Thoughts? Hi, uh, Vivek Krishmur at the IIT the Cyberlaw Clinic uh, with Chris. Um, my question is about sort of the nature of the community and what benefits people get from from being in it. So you, you spoke a bit about the information sharing that happenings. Oh, you know, I did this install here, or ran to this problem. Heads up here, you know, uh, here's a way to do it. But is there sort of a beyond just you know being part of an association where you could share information? Is there innovation happening within or between the members? So, for example, I'm an expert on System X, or you take your Logan Airport example, right? You have this vendor in Peabody who's an expert at installing these cameras, and someone and gets together with someone else who knows is an expert on something else, and you create a new product out of that. Is it just sort of, I mean, is the organization really targeted at people who do the customization, or is there actual like you know product innovation happening? Right, that's a very good question too. <laughs> There's another sector called the ISVs, independent software vendors, which is, you know, um, they, 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 this is where there are silos. These guys are generally not developing software to sell. They're not, uh, they're, they're doing the installs, making it all happen. But they do develop some software and they do customize and they could do it and they share that among themselves. But the one thing I didn't get into in the talk, which is very important, is the RMM, um, Remote Monitoring and Management. The industry is moving towards a managed service industry, which is, um, it's like, take a, take a, a jet airplane, there's, a, I think, 100, there's 100 million lines of code on the big jets today. I mean, everything's monitored. The, the pilot knows exactly what's going on every, all over the place. That's what these solution providers are doing to their customers, and this is very important. The, we have about 2,000 members. About 1,000 are doing mostly managed services, meaning they have remote monitoring management tools in all the devices of their clients. So they can look on a screen, the bandwidth, you know, IT, is everything working, uh, and the patches and the bugs, and, and they do the patches and they do scripts. How is it doing? They can tell. Well, the average member has 100 customers because with managed services, you don't have to be visiting anybody. So we have 1,000 members doing managed services with 100 customers each. That's um, 100,000. Say we take 10 PCs per average a customer. So we have a million PCs that these guys are managing daily. A million PCs that a thousand people are managing because of RMM tools that they have. And they've worked with the RMM ISVs to make the tools better. But they're not, they're, their business is not to make the tools. Um, it's for Microsoft and then a lot of the hundreds of smaller players to make tools and, server and products. Um, yeah. But they'll share what works. Yeah, but uh, they're not, that's not their role. Yeah. 
That's, I was going to follow up with a similar question about the move of, of products and services to the cloud. Does that, how does that impact the, right. the kinds that, of work you're, you're that's, remember that, to do? Okay, that's another interesting thing. You thought with the cloud, oh, Amazon and Microsoft and Google will do everything. You don't need anything. Just click there. It's like electricity. Another analogy is, well, in the beginning of the um, electricity, when electricity came out, they were, everybody had small little power plants. It was localized electric. Then the big power companies came and you don't have any little power plants anymore. So why isn't the internet going to do that to IT? Originally you had small PCs, now you have big cloud, you know, Amazons and Googles and Microsofts, Azure. You don't need anything else. It just downloaded like electricity. But electricity is not IT. And that's where it hasn't happened that way. So what's happened is the complicated, it's even more complicated because you have the cloud and you have on-service, on-site on servers, and you mostly hybrids. Well, some people have on-site. Doctors' office want to have some on-site. Hospitals, they'll put some in the cloud, but they, some they're so strategic, they don't want to have it in the cloud. So only these solution providers, these experts, knows what goes where, when, and how, and how they coordinate together. That's a complicated thing. Amazon doesn't know how to do that. Microsoft doesn't know how to do that. Um, so that's why these people are even more important than before. So I'm saying in the next five or 10 years, they are really more significant as a group than any particular manufacturer, even Microsoft. Um, it's hard to say, but they part the whole solution and when issues like the cloud, where it should go, what should go on, obviously is it HIPAA and who, how do you do all these things? These people know it, they have a lot on their plate. Um, and, and the cloud makes it even more complicated. It's not a single solution now, which people thought five or 10 years ago when the cloud was getting buzz and everything's on the cloud, uh, was going to do away with, these are not the middlemen, they're not dealers, they, they integrate the solution, okay? When they started, there were dealers, because when it started, a couple of manufacturers selling like autos, it was like an auto. Um, it'd be interesting how, with Tesla and some of the autos as the Internet of Things takes place in the auto industry, what's going to happen too when things go bad and there's no place to go. Um, so this is the future, but the cloud makes it them even more valuable than before. Yeah. Great. Other questions or thoughts? If not, I think we will. Uh, oh, one more here. Hold on one second. Hi, I'm Julianne. Um, I just had a question. In light of the uh, drop Justice Department lawsuit against Apple uh, over unlocking the Sam Bernardino shooter's iPhone, um, have has your company or companies in your co-op run into similar security or privacy issues? And if faced with a similar request from the FBI, would your company have complied or would they try to have um, your subsidiary companies, would you kind of twisted their arm a little bit into complying? How would you have handled that situation? Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, when that happened, there was stuff in the forum. Our guys knew how to have the FBI do it without going to anybody. There's a way of doing it. <laughs> they, they, they knew it. There were five, four or five things, and you, you, you know, presentation on 10,000, you could, you know. So they knew it before it went into the press. They know all this stuff. Um, they're, 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 again, they're fiduciary. So whatever the law is, they have to comply with it. They're, they're gonna disclose it. They're, they're like lawyers to their clients. I mean, it's a similar fiduciary duty, so they're not going to make the laws, they're not going to hopefully do anything unethical and say the law shouldn't be 
you know, what it is, but it is what it is. So you got to comply with what it is. You change it, but that's it. So we don't get directly involved, but they, they have to be involved day to day. Uh, again, they have an average hundred customers, so they have all sorts of customers with different needs. But obviously, this is one of the big issues of our time from a legal perspective and a government perspective is privacy rights. And Microsoft has a lawsuit right now with the government on privacy rights, right? Um, so these are major important issues that uh, we have to deal with day to day, but we're not going to make law on it. We just have to follow what's the law. Great. Maybe a good place to wrap it up. I just want to thank again, Ellen uh, and Alicia for coming over. And um, we really appreciate the talk. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you very much. Thank you.